Hi, everyone, and thank you so much for listening to the Girls Who VC podcast. Girls Who VC is the first organization dedicated to bringing young women into venture capital. My name is Isabella Mandis, and I'm the founder and CEO of Girls Who VC. On this podcast, I'm excited to introduce Jackie Reeses, who talks about her experiences working at Goldman, Yahoo, Square, and now being the chair and CEO of Lead Bank, a fintech infrastructure bank. I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much, Jackie, for coming on this podcast and sharing your story. I'd love for you to start off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Awesome. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to support what you're doing. I think it's fantastic. And anything we could do to inspire women in particular, but young people to participate in the VC industry, I'm completely supportive of. I'm Jackie. I'm from Atlantic City, New Jersey. And I went to University of Pennsylvania for college. I went to Wharton undergrad where I met the most incredible people. I love the experience. I love the school. It changed the trajectory of my life. From there, I went to Goldman Sachs, again, another institution that had an amazing impact on my career. And I worked in the merger department of Goldman Sachs. And then I moved to the principal investment area. After Goldman, I had a few short roles that were somewhat inconsequential. And then I moved to Apex Partners. And Apex, I worked at for 10 years. I was a partner. I ran TMT or the media team is what we focused on. And I invested for a long time and built most of my career in private equity. Then I transitioned to tech and I worked at Yahoo and then Square and really changed again the direction that my career took to go from investing and straight finance to that of fintech. So now I live in Woodside, California with my husband and my three kids and two dogs and I'm involved in lots of different things outside of my core day job, which is now the CEO of Lead Bank, which is a bank that I am building with some of my ex-Square colleagues. And we're in the middle of building a fintech infrastructure bank. So that's the general, that's my general background. Lots more to pick out there if you want to dig in anywhere. Amazing. Yeah. So starting off at the beginning, like you said, you started off your career working at Goldman and worked your way up to VP. So what insights did you gain from this financial experience? It's interesting. I was at Goldman when it was a small private company and everyone who went there stayed there for most of their career usually. And even though I learned the fundamentals of finance So accounting, structuring, valuation, M&A, investing. What I really learned at Goldman Sachs was that around team and culture. And I found Goldman at that era to be a very unique environment to watch excellence, to watch mentorship, to watch team camaraderie. And those elements of how Goldman built people's careers and helped foster and mentor the folks who work there into more sophisticated investors or M&A practitioners, I found to be incredibly insightful. And that's what I took most away from Goldman. You really can 
see the foundations of what does it take to be excellent? What does it take to build a culture of teamwork? And they were so good at it in that era. Um, And I know I've tried to adapt a lot of the principles of the way they think about team culture into my own company. I love that emphasis on culture and mentorship. That's something that I definitely value a lot. Next, you said you were a partner at Apex Partners, a private equity fund. How did previous experiences help you when transitioning over to the investing side? So Goldman and private equity were very similar. And I think the difference was that Goldman was run like a big institution and private equity was run more like a little country club. Groups of people who are all close, really trust each other. And at the time, it really wasn't an institutionalized business. Literally, it was like, I describe it as like a country club or or little groups of people. I think that has largely changed a lot of these large firms and they're more run like large institutionalized businesses at this point. And it was a very different experience from a culture point of view. Say on the investing side, in the actual job itself, it was very similar. Working in Goldman PIA was very similar to working at Apex in the sense of the structure of the job, the type of people you work with, the actual activities of what you do was very similar. The one interesting dynamic that I think is interesting is that at the time, Goldman didn't have a compensation structure that compensated people and put them at risk for their own investment decisions. And so you still got the benefit of working at a big institution. And at Apex, that was not the case. You lived and died by your own decisions economically. And I think it's really interesting to see the evolution of an industry where having investment professionals put capital on the line and having them align themselves as individuals in their own wallet to me, is a far superior model of how to align focus, attention, strategy, intensity. And so I do think it, it's illustrative of how there's a cohesive set of cultural and company structures you have to set up, comp being a really important one, in order to go and build a business. And in the early days of Goldman PIA, it wasn't aligned. And they eventually aligned their comp to match the structure of what it was that they were doing, where people put their money where their mouth is. But it was far better structured at a place like Apex, where people really felt the pressure of their own decisions because they were were investing behind their own capital decisions themselves. Do you feel like there are any cons to that on the other side rather than just all pros? I think there was a team orientation around the way Goldman operated because they felt like they needed to do right for the overall company. And I think it's harder to have that in private equity unless you get incentives. Like You have to build that into a firm where it's not only the performance of your deal, it could be the performance of a fund or it could be the performance of the overall private equity firm. I think you have to be very intentional about what you're trying to incentivize when you set up these firms. Different firms have different structures where they incentivize individual deals. They incentivize an overall fund. They incentivize a firm. 
And I do think they yield differential outcomes depending on what you're trying to achieve. And there are pros and cons to each one of those, but I think depending on what you're trying to achieve, any one model could be relevant for a particular firm or even a particular era in a firm's evolution. Got it. Thank you. And after Apex, you were the chief development officer at Yahoo. So can you talk about what this role entailed, what the transition was like going from more traditional finance roles to a tech company? So we made up the title. There is no such thing as a chief development officer, but we couldn't come up with anything else to call it. And I ran a lot of teams across the company. I ran the search affiliate business, which was a fairly significant business at Yahoo. I ran the M&A team. I ran the HR team. I sat on the board of Alibaba, the Asian assets, which kind of represented most of the market cap of Yahoo, the ownership position in Alibaba, for example. They also had an ownership position in Yahoo Japan. So I was very involved in those roles. And because I had a pretty broad swath of responsibility, I'd say some of the experience I had in private equity was relevant. Like I sat on the board of a very large company and understanding how to be a board member and how to be a constructive participant at that level was something I understood from my private equity experience. It's different than operating being a board member and being an operator. Then some of the roles I had, like the search affiliate business or HR, were far more operationally intensive roles. And so it was a new skill set that I learned. But having private equity experience in my prior life was a great foundation for how to think about running a company overall. And so most of what I learned in private equity I was able to apply to different components of the job in different ways. You learn to be a strategic thinker. You learn to be operationally detailed. You learn to, you know, ask lots of questions, to be curious, to look at businesses overall. I think those are fairly foundational skills that were useful. I'd say there was probably less on the cultural and operating side that I learned at private equity. But those were things that I just bedded myself into in a very deep way so that I could learn it from the bottoms up and try to make myself good at it at a detailed level, in addition to understanding it from a a top level strategic point of view. And more less on the side of actually what you were doing, but just what was it like being in a tech company that's growing and really different environment than finance companies like Goldman Sachs? Oh my God, it's so much fun. I loved it. I loved it. I had so much fun learning how to run a company. Like when you dig in and really help build a company, a product, it really feels amazing. Like when we launched new products at Square, for example, I loved watching consumers learn about the product, think about how to distribute it, watch people use what we were building. And there was an incredible joy that I had around knowing that I've launched something into the world that's changing people's lives. And that felt really different than being a step removed from that in the context of private equity. And I transitioned 
from finance where I used to think I had the best job in the world in private equity into an operating role. And then I would never go back. I really loved it. And yeah, no, I found a lot of joy in it. And I, the other thing I really like is that when I went to Yahoo and Square, these were companies that were iconic companies in Silicon Valley. What I had not appreciated while I was in private equity was just how smart the folks are in tech companies. And now I think it's more obvious that if you're a really smart kid at the top of your class at Harvard, for example, many of whom are going to tech. And that was not the case when I was in my 20s. And now I see it as being a fairly significant hiring path for many of the smartest kids in the world. And the people I worked with at both Square and Yahoo are absolutely brilliant. They've become very good friends in many cases. They're changing the world. They're building incredible products. And I am so glad that I got inculcated into this environment in the types of companies that I did to watch tech operate with the best of the best. It's been amazing. That's incredible. And next on your journey, you touched on being at Square. So you were the capital lead and executive chair of Square Financial Services. What did you learn from transitioning now from a more established tech company a little bit earlier stage in the startup environment? What really matters in innovative companies is culture. And it's easy to hire the same kind of people. What differentiates tech companies is how people perform and their own creativity is put to work day in, day out in order to outperform as a company. And everything you set up internally has to be built to foster that kind of creativity. And it's really interesting to think about that in the context of how do you drive outsized performance. And so that's what I found fascinating at Square, where I felt like I was working with colleagues who were extraordinary and working with a founder who was extraordinary. And it was an amazing experience to be a part of. And now you're the CEO of Lead Bank, building the bank you wanted to see in fintech. And you also published a report on fintech revolution. So no one better to ask than can you explain for our listeners that don't really understand the industry, what fintech is and how it differs from traditional financial services? Yeah, it's an amazing question because the difference will blur over time. Fintech is the application of technology to financial services and being able to deploy a more technologically sophisticated solution to a old school problem that's existed in finance. Now, the reason I mention it blurs is because I look at a product like Zelle, which by the way, I would never use. I think it's just awful. And Zelle is an example of a peer-to-peer -peer app created by traditional financial services players, but it's a fintech product. And so I do think the definition is fairly obscured. I see this environment of financial services as being one where no matter who you are, whether you're 
an old school financial services company that's been public for 50 years or a startup in this market, there is an incredible amount of attention being paid to taking a complicated industry and trying to abstract away some of that complexity for consumers and businesses. And a lot of the products that we use day in and day out, because we all use money every day, are going through a sea change in the way that we use them. Even the idea of what is paper money and what is currency is changing and how we use it every day is changing. And I think there's a lot of excitement in creating products that really change the way people's daily habits happen and moving them from location-based, physical-based to phone-based and digitally based. And so that's what fintech is and how it's trying to change financial products. So what trends are you currently seeing in the industry and what do you think is going to happen in the next couple of years? The last 10 years has been an incredible, incredible for financial technology. If you think about mobile payments evolving over the last 10 years. I think most people can't even remember back to when that didn't exist. Think pre-square, pre-dongle. That's really the start of the mobile payments industry 15 years ago and PayPal, Square, those two companies. So what was your life like pre those two world-changing innovations? We had to pay with cash. Most taxis didn't have credit cards, for example. You didn't pay with your phone. We used very traditional means of payment for how we did things. In many instances, we were sending checks in order to make payments. And it was highly complex and time-consuming in order to execute any type of financial transaction. And over the last 10 years, there's been a lot of innovation around the revenue side of financial services transactions. And by that point of sale, the way things get paid for at a register on your phone, and we've moved from a largely analog type of system to a large, largely digital type of system. And frankly, COVID really helped drive that paradigm shift in what platform is used, both in physical locations and online. COVID really was an accelerant. And so for the next 10 years, I could see where we move past the innovations along the revenue side, and we now move to innovations around the expense side. So what does that mean? Today, it's still really complicated to pay bills. There are checks, there are invoices, there's ACH payments. It's still really complicated. Bookkeeping's really complicated. And I see more complexity being abstracted out of that type of transaction over the next 10 years as we finally get good at moving down an income statement and improving the way we manage expense, not just income. The second piece that I would look for in the next 10 years 
is how fundamentals and infrastructure in this market change what options can be deployed by financial services companies and how quickly. I own a bank, I own a company called Lead Bank. We build infrastructure for fintechs and crypto companies. The infrastructure we build are debit cards, credit cards, secured cards, ACH money movement, and we help financial technology companies build on top of our rails. It's gotten so much better how my business has operated over the past 10 years. And now because we are better at what we do, the customers we serve can be better at what they do, touching the end consumer or the end business. And I think that will continue to be an important component of how fintechs and companies can embed financial products into their services in an easy and fluid way, such that you'll start to see transactions happening in context over the course of the next 10 years versus out of context, which is still how they happen today. Incredible. And the next question is probably what I'm most excited to speak to you about, but you're also an author of a book called Self-Made Boss, the first book, crowdsourcing advice on how to start, run, and grow a small business. So why did you decide to write this book? So the book is meant to help micro businesses start, run, and grow their business. Each chapter is a topic like HR, finance, operations, marketing, and it was meant to help support micro businesses with the pragmatics of how to build their companies. And in the middle of COVID, where I was at Square, trying to help small businesses through the COVID program sponsored by the federal government, Lauren Weinberg, who is my co-author and the chief marketing officer of Square, and I felt the pain of these businesses in an incredibly visceral way, day in, day out phone calls. And we decided that there was a dearth of content and we would write a book in order to help these companies. And so we pulled ideas and advice from about 50 businesses that we interviewed. And then we also pulled additional advice from experts. And so the book is a compilation of the advice from both of those types of people into these chapters. And it's meant to be pragmatic, approachable, useful, real. And the book's done incredibly well. It was really meant as a public service, and it's been a labor of love. We've enjoyed writing it. I love doing it. I love meeting with all these companies. It's super fun. That's incredible. And I love how you brought in different people as contributors. So what made you decide to do this rather than just sharing your own experiences? Oh, because so many people have so much to share. I'll give you an example. There's a guy in there who is a photographer, and he photographs food for websites. And he had great wisdom to share. And I would have never come up with half the things that he had to say, like incredible advice. And we realized that there were people who know some of these domains incredibly well, we could access any of them. And so 
pulling together experts in all these fields was fun and useful. And so where we knew a topic, we'd talk about it. Lauren obviously knows marketing to small businesses incredibly well. I know financing, but even getting other people's ideas and advice on topics we knew was really helpful. And it just made it a fun way to draw in great advice for everybody. And what are some of your favorite things that you learned while writing the book? Oh, I loved how creative these small businesses were about how they run their business. It's inspiring. And the types of things they do to build their businesses, even if they're a food truck or a single restaurant or a hair salon, is no different than what big companies do. It just sounds a lot less strategic. I was always amazed by that. And you could ask a single chair hair salon how they do marketing. And the woman who runs it will tell you her advice. And then when you really think about the fundamentals of what she's telling you, it might be the exact same thing that Procter & Gamble does. And I did think it was really interesting to learn that. Everyone gets it in their bones when they run a business. They learn how to do it. They just might not be as articulate or as framework driven and how they explain how they do something. But in the grand scheme of things, these small businesses are viscerally learning a lot of the same skills that many of the world's best in class business executives do. And so that's that was fun to think about and see happen, even in the smallest of companies. Incredible. And to close off, I'd love to know what advice you have for the people listening that want to be a self-made boss. Any takeaways from the book that you think people would resonate with? Yeah, you got to just go for it. Get your group of people who are going to be really good advisors to you, going to give you honest advice. And then if you really want to own your own company, you got to just go for it. There's never a good time to start. There's always going to be an obstacle. There's always going to be something hard. But if that's your dream, you got to try to go for it and live your dream. And I know I did it as an older person after having an amazing career in tech and private equity. And I always wanted to have my own company. And I'm thankful that my co-founders and I decided that we were ready and we just went for it. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast and sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast and supporting Girls Who VC. Make sure to check out our website, girlswhovc.com, and follow us on social media at Girls Who VC. See you next time.